Welcome to episode one of Dear Gardener. Today we find ourselves in Oxford, where Kate, the head gardener at beautiful Trinity College, is thinking about bulbs and winter bedding. We are in the east of Long Island, where Alejandro, director of the Madhu Conservancy, works to keep his densely planted space open to the wide Atlantic skies. And we're in the cradle of mankind, where Vicky and the wild tortoises are waiting for spring rains. For those of you who followed me here from the garden log, I'll give a brief update on life in my garden at the end. Until then, it's time to hear from our dear gardeners, Alejandro, Vicky and Kate. Times are getting tough and the folks are cutting down. They even decided to do their own gardening. Their own gardening. Take my advice and knock off for a while. The happiness boys are on a rampage. Fred has helped me to start a small Pelagonia nursery, yes. Hi. Hello, Kate. How are you? I am good. I'm good. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you absolutely fine. Hello. Hey, how are you? Very well, thank you. Great to see you again. Good to see you. Hello. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. How are you? Good. Listen, I'm sorry, my dogs are going to settle down now. I don't know what they're barking at. Just give them one sec. Is it the Madhu Conservancy you're called? Saddled with the name Conservancy, which people can't spell, and usually change to Conservatory, which is kind of mortifying. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, you try running a business that people can't pronounce. That sounded a bit sort of old person-y with technology, didn't it? Can you hear me over the computer? <laughs> we are a little bit backwards with our technology sometimes. It's only right considering where you are. How is Oxford today? It's all right. It's a sudden onslaught of autumn. It's almost chilly. Definitely feeling like the changes are coming. Otherwise, lovely. <laughs> what happened was as soon as they heard me say hello, I mustn't say that too loudly, then they obviously think that a visitor is somewhere around, and then they all bark. <laughs> but we've had wonderful wildlife the last few days, but we're still desperate for rain. We haven't had a drop. Really? For how long? About the 15th of April, but that's normal. We think it should be now, but it's not. It's sort of first week of October that we get our first rain. But we start to be so desperate that we think it's late. <laughs> and how will you celebrate when it comes? The dogs will enjoy it. The dogs will love it. Everyone, the tortoises will love it. We'll all love it. <laughs> Even my parrot, I've got a parrot, and he loves it when it rains. It's his favorite time. The one morning I need everything to work. I get home last night. The battery on my computer is completely dead. I race to work because I thought I only had my chargers here. Plug it in, and it's not lighting up my computer. Okay. I hope you weren't rushing around on my behalf. Okay. Good, good, good. How's your week been? So far, so good. Got some work done in the garden. We got some rain, which is a small miracle because we've been really droughty here. You're beginning to look at, you know, fall things. And there's a couple of little projects that are nearing completion. 
there's a frog fountain in the garden and that is basically it was a basin with a column coming out of it and then a little stone frog on top that spit water and the, the column is about five almost six feet tall probably six feet tall it just was like falling apart the cable was running out over the basin over the pathway the brickwork is kind of falling apart so we removed the brick and it ended up having this really kind of chic concrete shell so it suddenly became a lot more modern and then they drilled through the bottom of the basin and figured out how to do the electrical so that it would actually be you know code compliant and be easy to replace because apparently god only knows why but fountain pumps go out every two or three years that's a good business model we are in what's called the cradle of mankind so it's a world heritage site it's built on granite grassland, so it's very dry, and actually we're in a rain shadow area. We're about an hour out of Santon, which is the main business area of Johannesburg. It's a huge estate, thousands of hectares, but we have got about an acre fenced, and then we've got an acre around us, very natural, so that the wildlife can move through that. The fenced areas mainly, it's, it's about half lawn and indigenous and ponds, and then about half of it is roses and dahlias and then flowers. A lot of grass growing. So yeah, I've just been been out tackling some of that. The lawns are coming back with a vengeance, which is both a relief and really inconvenient. I found the summer this sort of weird, desolate time, and I didn't realise how much it was actually getting to me. The fact that it was so dry and things were struggling so much. In retrospect, I think all, all people in horticulture were really quite sort of depressed, weren't they? But, but we weren't realising it. We were under the same stress as the plants, but not really thinking about it. And now it's all come back. Yeah, there is a little rebirth of, oh, yes, that's what we do, don't we? You know, we, we deadhead, we weed, we cut things back. Don't think I quite acknowledged it until we were coming out of it. And then... Uh, that's why I've been feeling slightly strange and desperate and tired. The heat and the dry had worn me down as well. It wasn't just the persicaria that were, you know, <laughs> worse for wear. <laughs> it had a, a sort of like a granite boulder. They're almost like granite sets. They're just natural small rocks. They just finished relaying that somewhat closer together, fresh cement in between and perfectly flush. So it is a lot safer and it still has the same look and it has the same foot feel. And then, and then now the fun part starts where we start choosing plants. What, what are you thinking? Tell me your vision. Well, it already has some hydrangeas there and that's kind of the only part of the garden that has hydrangeas. So I thought, let's chalk it up with some newer varieties with some that are a little bit different. Out here on the East End, we're famous for the Nico Blue the big leaf hydrangeas, microphylla. And so avoiding those, it already has some lace caps and an Annabelle or two kicking around there. And then like a, a really sort of, I hate the word, but it kind of cracked me up, curated perennial layer, you know, ground cover around the edge of the pathway. Excellent. And by, by curated, you mean... I saw the other day on Instagram, someone referred to their perennial selection as a curated perennial selection. It kind of cracked me up. So I, it, in my mind, it's just things that are a little bit more special. So it's going to be like some Masarum, some Helibor, 
Fetidus, which has that very sort of lacy sort of almost palm leaf and, and a bunch of, you know, sort of sparkly little small flower things. That, it'll give you a slight woodland feeling. We've had beautiful tortoises coming in. What happens is when they're sleeping during winter, then we plant up the orchard with lettuces and spinach and all their favorite things. And then they wake up and then they get a huge surprise when they come. So they've been, <laughs> they've been eating all of that very happily. This morning I had three beautiful niala, so deer, but big ones, just at our fence. But yeah, but we hear, you know, we can hear the jackals at night at the moment. So everything's waiting for rain. I think everything sort of stops and then waits for rain. And of course, then all the babies come and it's just beautiful again. But at the moment, it's dreadful. It's so ugly, the garden. We water a bit. We do water because you have to. And the roses and stuff are desperate at the moment for water because it's so hot. But when it comes, and especially um, in the sort of grass areas, um, your flowers that you never knew existed suddenly pop up when the rains come. Overnight, the brown hills become green. They're absolutely beautiful. And I think we get, I'm sure like all countries, we fixated with weather in South Africa. Well, I think because we're so fixated with rain and we wait and wait and wait and hope that the rains are going to be reasonable because we get so little. So we're obsessed with it. So that we're all waiting at the moment for the rain to come. I think mainly how I'm feeling at the moment is pretty excited because we are coming out of that summer kind of holding bay maintenance period where things kind of look lovely but you're not doing the most exciting things in the garden are you so we're just at that point where we're, we're starting to really think about next year um, and I'd say you know it's a it is a closely guarded secret but we do actually spend a bit of money on the gardens here I think um, people like to display that we're almost oh we just you know we just put things together a bit and it's like it's like at home divide up a few plants and and see what happens but we we do actually uh buy buy things in to make, make our gardens look nice so at the moment I've, I've just got all the plug plants coming in which will do our our winter display we don't have much in terms of propagation space so it's just easier to go to in some cases just little domestic nurseries that will send you plug plants and we start off things like our little violas for winter and things like that from from plugs in our medium-sized greenhouse that we have so those have just started arriving and we're, we're sort of trying to urge those towards growth so we can change our pop displays over the first lot of bulbs will arrive next week again there'll be a mixture for our, our sort of pop displays across college to first fourth in spring and the other thing that's just arrived which is one of those things gardeners get really excited about is a load of mulch. We don't have our compost heaps at the moment because of all the building works and that's a sort of next year's project to reinstate them. So at the moment, I just have trailer loads arriving. The, the first lot arrived yesterday and two of the team are, are busy, busy with that, which is it's, it's slightly early, but we've got so much on October, November time that I'm, I'm sort of getting in there with a little bit of feeding and protection and tidying of the mouth. If you're looking for a GM, you're only going to find totally tangerine. If you're looking for Crocosmia, it's going to be Lucifer. You know, there might be two others. If you're looking for, what's a red hot poker? You're never going to find any of the sort of subtle yellowy greeny ones. I mean, you know, you might find them. I shouldn't say never. 
but um, sweeping generalization is you'll only find it occasionally. I think, unfortunately, things might be heading that way in the UK as well, because plants are increasingly bought from just big box stores. The plantings and the fountain, are they part of Robert Dash's original layout? The fountain is the planting's arch. That's changed quite a bit. It used to have, oh, what is it? Um, Camiciparis aurea trees all around it. So it was this very sort of secret garden, but they had really gotten shaded out. And they basically were just kind of like, okay, these things are goners. You have to remember the garden was really sort of developed in the 70s and 80s. There's a lot of Camiciparis aurea. Um, and there's a lot of rosemary, very gold leaf plant influence in the garden. And they were looking terrible. And I told the gardeners to get rid of them. And they said, no, Alejandro. And I said, get rid of them. And they said, no. So I said, okay, well, get rid of the dead ones and really trim back, prune back hard the ones that are alive, thinking they might come out like cones in a very Frenchy manner. And that didn't work because they really were so dead. But the tops came back to life. So I turned them into standards. So they're right at head height. Um, so we have five of those now surrounding the fountain, which is really whimsical and kind of fun. Were you talking to the other head gardeners? Were they all suffering similarly? Yeah, they were. I mean, there's a mix of staffing and approach to the gardens and the college and philosophies and things. So different people were sort of doing different things. But I mean, generally we were all just looking very dry and frazzled and yeah slightly shrugging our shoulders and going well I suppose that's that's what this year's thrown at us and then of course you know some of them you know they are right on the river or they have lakes and things like that so actually there's there's a lot more water on site for them whereas we're unusually for Oxford which is a city that there is very marshy and quite often underwater in parts where it's not meant to be you know we we don't really have that much access to water and the university parks which are you know sort of great swathe of land just up on the north side of the city center where all the university sports pitches are but there's great collections of trees and things in there that was really sort of dry and autumnal really kind of halfway through the summer but apparently there's about five or six foot of soil there and then it's in sort of shale and gravel and things from old construction so actually despite being next to two of the rivers it, it was really dry up there so yeah that was a bit of a shock adjacent to that frog fountain there's a sycamore and for years it wasn't pollarded which is probably why those camiciparis were dying because it really had gotten to the point of a large tree and after bob died and i was working in the garden i noticed that sort of you know knotty bit where all the new sprouts had come out from where it had formerly been pollarded and we started doing it and now you've got you know something that looks kind of cool and very controlled but went probably from 20 feet across to five feet across and there's a rose planted right next to it it's one of those things like half the time i'm playing what someone called forensic gardener and you're trying to guess what bob was thinking so it's it's a pink rose it's right next to a variegated holly that's planted in front of this sycamore with that multicolored, you know, creamy green, brown, beige bark. And so I, I'm actually thinking it would be kind of fun to train that rose up it and then have the roses come off of it. And it would be really wonky looking. Porcupines love anything, anything with tubers they love. But funny enough, not clivias. 
but I actually think that clivia roots might be poisonous. Look, they're clever. They know what they can and what they can't eat. Actually, acapanthus as well, they don't eat. They have a look around, but they don't eat them. And clivias, but everything else we've moved inside, especially our irises, they adore irises. And they love those arum lilies. They absolutely adore those. But we've got none of those outside. <laughs> That's all fenced. And funny enough, our first iris flowered yesterday. So we were very happy. A blue one, a beautiful sort of pale bluey mauve one has flowered. Gorgeous. Are these Iris Germanica? Yeah. yeah. And then we've also got those Louisiana irises, the ones that you can put in water because we've got an eco pond, well, an eco pool actually. So it's a completely natural swimming pool and they're all around the edge of it in the filter area and they're beautiful. They're also about to flower. I don't know what the Louisiana iris is. Just describe it for me. Um, it actually looks just like a bearded iris, but it grows in water. Okay. In similar colors, similar two tones. In fact, I think they like anything swamp. It's not indigenous to South Africa, but they like to grow in water. They like their feet wet. Um, so they do beautifully in our swimming pool. That's the swimming pool where our Labrador spends most of his day. We don't get in there much, but our Labrador spends most of his day in there. We're dealing with someone who was a poet turned painter turned gardener. And when you put that life together, it, it creates this very rich tapestry of what Madhu is. So you get a very sort of Bloomsbury effect, a very sort of an American Bloomsbury. So there's the Asian pond gardens. There's a, an Elizabethan knot garden. There's a bower, which looks very Dutch or Belgian in Hornbeam. We just installed tapestry, hedge, uh, garden rooms along one border. So you have all of these different aspects of a garden and then you throw in the poetry and the art and I think you end up with a really rich book. The, the trick is going to be how do you put it together and at, where does it live in the bookstore, which is, you know, what publishers are interested in. And is that planted similarly to the other ponds that you have? We've got one pond which has actually got lotuses in it which we're trying to get to grow, not very successfully, but we try. And then our other ponds are mainly water lilies and then quite a lot of thick vegetation because we've got lots of kingfishers. So they, we try and give the fish as much opportunity to hide as they can. And then lots of arum lilies, which are beautiful. They're indigenous to South Africa and they're absolutely exquisite. They're also flowering at the moment. Everything's starting to just pop. The, the spring stuff's starting to go off because we're getting too hot. We're above 30 degrees already. But the summer stuff is starting to wait for rain and start to pop up now. I remember asking him who his favorite gardener was. And this is probably 20, let's see, he died in 2013. Let's just say it's 2010, 2011. And he said Fernando Caruncho. I don't know Fernando Caruncho. He's in Spain, very philosophical, modernist, maybe even you would call him a minimalist. He is, I think, a philosopher by training. Um, so he comes at it in this very poetic way, but really minimal work. Which doesn't strike me. What was going on at Madhu, exactly. I mean, he couldn't help himself in front of a plant catalog. Bob, I mean. Uh, on our lawn, like you do in Europe, you uh, put sort of daffodils and stuff in your lawn. We've put, they're called rain lilies. We've got about a thousand plugged into our lawn and they don't come up for anything. No irrigation will bring them up. But the first rain and the next day, they'll all be out flowering. 
It's the most unbelievable thing you'll ever see. They're magnificent. They're indigenous to South Africa. I'm not actually sure what their scientific name is. Just describe them. I think it begins with a Z. Uh, simple, sort of two leaves and the most beautiful perky whitey flower. And they literally, they come out once it rains. And then we actually then just mow them in and they're in and then they'll be out again at the next rain. They're too beautiful. This lot is actually fine bark mulch. So nicely, nicely rotted down before it comes to us, which I use for certain areas mainly because it's it's pretty fragrance free. It has that sort of light piney smell. I think people think I'm cabreezing the garden or something, but uh, for the areas that are outside the president's house or, you know, the, the sort of main bits of border actually having having something which isn't going to stink people out for a, a few weeks is, is quite important. There's, there's other areas where I might use something a bit more, more manure-y. And it's also, it's lovely and light to shift around as well. It's easier work. We, we all love it, basically, because it uh, just, just skip along with a barrow load of it rather than, than grunting behind something steaming and heavy. This is good work to do before the students come back for, for Michaelmas, they call it, with you, didn't they? It is, yeah. So our, our funny little Oxford terms where we have these three eight-week terms, which are, yeah, Michaelmas, Hillary and Trinity. Our students usually appear about a week before it starts, and then there's just this in, incredibly intense period, you know, for, for them with studies, but for everybody who works, you know, both on the academic side and the, the support side to, to kind of get everybody through this, this sort of eight weeks. Um, and in the midst of that, we often have quite a lot of events and, and things as well. So it can it can be really busy for everybody between now and about the 12th of December or something. And then, then it goes quiet and exactly you can start wheeling large quantities of mulch and compost around the college again. I know that you studied the Oxford Botanical Garden, but you were also an undergrad at Oxford, is that right? I was, yeah. So I'm having this very strange out-of-body experience of coming back in a very different guise and seeing people who, you know, resemble me and my friends kind of 25 years ago coming to, to do their degrees here. So yeah, I studied studied modern languages originally. I was at Brasenose College, a sort of more central and less gardeny college. And in fact, I was not really that interested in horticulture at the time. I think a, a friend once suggested that we would go and visit the Botanic Garden and I decided I had something better to do. So uh, my, my interest sort of grew over the, the sort of 15 years or so sort of after, after that degree. And then, yeah, I was lucky enough to get a traineeship at the Botanic Garden here, which is a one-year paid traineeship. It's now morphed into a two-year apprenticeship. So the, the trainees there now get, get two years there rather than just the one. Um, and it really was just the most amazing learning experience um, for the sheer variety of plants and the sheer preciseness of how um, those, those botanical horticulturists approach their work. It's a really good way, I think, to you know, set yourself on a career in horticulture. But that said, amongst the head gardeners of Oxford, you know, we're, we're a very mixed crew and there are, as you will know yourself, as, as others you know, you know, there are so many different routes into horticulture, aren't there? Do you mind telling me a little bit about how you came to be involved in Madhu? Sure, it's, it's total happenstance. I mean, it's being at the right spot at the right time. I 
had been working in the city since college until about, uh, let's probably like 15, 17 years, something like that, working and living in Manhattan. I was working in fashion and I kind of got bored of it slash tired of the difficulty of that world in New York in particular. My partner and I had just bought a house in Bridgehampton the prior year. And I said, Kendall, you know, I'm just going to move out there. I'm going to sublet my apartment and see what life is like out there. That was 19 years ago. So I ended up coming out here one September, working at like a cookware shop. You know, I, I like cooking. I'm pretty good at it. I, I became a pretty, pretty darn good salesman very quickly there. It's not too hard to sell a Teflon pan and then tell someone that they should buy the plastic spatula because you don't want to ruin the pan. Tell me about that first day with your own Oxford College. So hugely exciting. I think I, not just sort of the, the prospect of being an Oxford head gardener, but I had a real desire, I think, to be in the gardens at, at Trinity. It's, it's in some ways an anomaly amongst some of the Oxford colleges. So there are, you know, sort of 30 colleges in total, but over 30. Some of them more ancient, some of them more modern. The older colleges tend to be these really sort of tucked away austere looking places, you know, and that their mystique is about, you know, there's a door in a tall three-story honey stone wall that you go through into these quads. Whereas Trinity has this sort of different, this this different attitude where you can see in, we have these big gates on both sides of the college and these large, quite open lawns that lead up to it. Although when the college was founded, it was technically outside of the city walls. We are slap bang in central Oxford on, on Broad Street. And that means, you know, people are constantly passing by and, and sort of looking in through the gates. So just the idea of having these, these gardens and grounds that were so sort of unique and on display was, was really tantalising. So, yeah, a, a properly exciting prospect for me. Is there a college archive? Is there a, a place where you could find out about your 500 years of predecessors? There, they have the occasional sort of bits of receipts and purchases and a few records of who, who a gardener was or, you know, whether there was a paid gardener or, or not, um, which, you know, our, our archivist is, is much better at piecing together the story than I am. But one of the things I'd like to do is, is sort of try and find a way where we actually can start to find a slightly better way of recording our gardens particularly what plants are in there because we we don't actually know when you know quite significant trees in the gardens were planted some of them I've had to sort of go back and you know get get some help keying them out and find out exactly what species we've got and you think all these things because it's Oxford they'd be recorded and they'd be you know sort of just you sort of flip open some books and there'd be lists and lists of who did what when but the, the gardens are a little sort of short on detail. And then I started working for a friend who had this really amazing greenhouse um, in the neighboring village in Wainscott. We had this very boutique business very specialist. We grew things for particular clients. It was still a time when you could order seeds from Chilterns and Jalito and get that kind of thing easily. It's really hard now. I still get seeds from Dairy Watkins at Special Plants, but I can't really get seeds from big seed houses, which is too bad. So we would grow things in, in particular for people. So that, you know, really broadened 
my interest in gardening and my knowledge of gardening. So I learned propagation and taking care of plants and that sort of thing and met a zillion people along the way. And then one day, one of the board members here at Madhu came by and said, you know, hey, we need a new director. And I said, sure. And I kept, I kept that job and then just did this at nighttime. And little by little, it became a full-time job. The tulips were magnificent, amazingly. The sweet peas are still looking beautiful, but I don't know how much longer they're going to last, but they're looking stunning. And our clivias are always beautiful at this time of the year, and they give us at least another month of flowers. The anemones and the ranunculus were beautiful, but we've probably got about another week or so of those. Those are starting to, to all go off. But then we tuck them up. I don't lift them. We tuck them up in lots of soil and compost. And we try and put them as deep down as possible. And then we hope that they'll come up next year again. And most of them do. We had a really, really mild winter last year. I'm reasonably new to Trinity. So just discovering how how our microclimates are within this garden. I think one of the things last year was I put some tulips in my, my window boxes around one of the quads and these little sort of stumpy and distorted things appeared. And I think it probably was because it just didn't get cold enough in that quadrangle during the winter for the tulip bulbs to have that period of cold stratification, which sort of makes them grow properly. So you have these, these sort of slightly strange little ground level distorted flowers coming up. So I've learned my lesson on that one. But there'll be lots of little surprises for me over the years. In this garden, we've been for seven years now. We started, it was literally overgrazed cattle fields. So just grass with that sort of tiny little rock kind of soil. We did it from, from scratch. We didn't take down one tree. We rather built around the trees. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been seven years, but lots of compost. What are your trees? What are the trees that you had? Um, mostly um, wild olives. So all indigenous and then lots of Saltus Africanus, which is a stinkwood, a white stinkwood. Um, and then quite a few badlias, so all indigenous trees. And unfortunately in this area, we don't have any big trees. It's just not, it's sort of more grasslands. So they're more small trees. Um, but they, yeah, they, they grow and they give you the shade. And then I guess it's what the nature in this area needs to eat and that sort of stuff. In fact, this garden, when we first moved, <clears throat> we thought, no, we don't want anything to block our views. And we sort of kept our whole front view open. And it just became so hot. And actually, you do want stuff to block your views in some ways and shelter. And now we've planted a lot more trees much closer to the house. Somehow that huge view, it's more beautiful if it's a small view through something. Do, do you know what I mean? Yes, you don't take away from it by having a few almost window frame plants. No, in fact, you add to it. So probably end of October, we'll take out the, the summer stuff. So we've got, you know, cannas and dahlias and things like that in there. We'll take those out. We'll put in some layers of, of masses of tulips. I think in, in the garden quad, which is our, our big sort of most, most obvious quad, um, we uh, have a mixture of what's going in there. I think it's blushing lady, red dress and black hero. Um, so a sort of pinky red and dark purple. We'll see how that goes down. It might be a little bit 
modern clashing, but people people might quite enjoy it. That sounds lovely. Yeah, I tried it at home last year and I, I personally enjoyed it. So I'm hoping that some somebody else will also enjoy that that combo as well. Um, and I find that's quite a nice way to do it, to just sort of have, have some that you try it at home as well as you, you've tried and tested. And then on top of that, we'll have some, some Mafia Pogan, um, uh, some little white hellebores and some viola sorbet white as well, but quite light planting because there'll be a lot of tulip coming through and a bit of muscari white magic as well. The planting on top is kind of a holding bay for the tulips underneath. So that's, we have these big barrels out in the courtyard and then the window boxes though will we'll not have tulips this year. They will, uh, they will just have um, some little narcissus we know and a few, a few other bits and pieces. We've got quite a few beehives, so we try and leave, we try and give the bees our first and our last flash of flowers. We try, and then everything in between we pick. But they're all over our puppies, our Iceland puppies, the bees. You'll look inside them and there'll be like seven bees inside <laughs> you'll eating. So they've got lots to eat at the moment. You're producing honey then? We are. Yeah, we are. We haven't harvested for a while because in winter we leave all the honey for them. But we'll harvest probably in the next month or so. It tastes of the garden. It tastes and smells of the garden. Oh, really? It's beautiful. It really, and we've never, never been stung. We've never had an issue, amazingly. But I think bees kind of coexist um, in the gardens that look after them. Then we've got three hives and two have come on their own. And then one, a beekeeper bought to us, and it's the most aggressive hive we've ever had. I don't know where it comes from, but it doesn't, it's not, certainly not from this area. But they've settled. They kind of are used to us. But that's been the only one that we've had a few issues with. And we've got a beekeeper that comes at night, and he does the bees by torch. And it's quite incredible how he deals with them. So he deals with a full hive, whereas most beekeepers do it during the day when the bees are out. He actually does his work at night when the bees are all in the hive. And he works with them and there's no disturbance. There's, they are just so calm. It's unbelievable. In the beginning, it was really, you know, Robert Dash's personal assistant. And he did the garden and he did the art. And that lasted for four years until he passed away. In the last year of his life, I really sort of took care of him, you know, taking him to get treatments and that sort of thing. And then by the end of it, there was one day that's still very touching to me when he was supposed to take an appointment and he said he didn't want to. And he said, you can do it. He said, you're Madhu now. And, you know, it's just one of those things that still gives me the chills. Hello. Okay, do you have a tree surgeon lost somewhere in the grounds? Oh yeah, exactly. He's, he's wandering, looking for the right tree to work on. So... Uh... <laughs> But uh, the, the team are going to go and find him, so that's fine. I think, you know, we have all, all the things that other people juggle with in their, their jobs in terms of people and supplies and whatever, but we're also dealing with the weather in a way that quite a lot of professions don't have to, and we're dealing with these sort of living living things, the plants themselves. We, we sort of had this new garden in a quad, so one that used to be just sort of concrete cobbles has got this big sort of raised bed and lawn in it now, which I, I'm, you know, really, again, quite excited about, you know, how often do you get to plant up a brand new quad in an Oxford college? Very rarely. What have you put in? 
Um, so because it's it's actually essentially a sort of roof-like structure because there's an enormous basement room underneath it. So we've only got about 30 centimetres or so of soil and the soil that's been put in was quite lightweight. But it hasn't also ended up as quite as free draining as we thought it would be being a, a roof. So I basically kind of gone for a collection of quite bomb-proof plants that I think will withstand the dry of the summer, a sort of slightly soggy winter, parts of it get very, it, it's a sun trap, it's quite a high ward quad, so sun trap in summer but extremely shaded in winter. But really what I wanted to do was build up a, a bit of a matrix of plants that would self-sustain in that environment. So it's a mixture of well, quite odd thing. So there's there's some ajuga in there just to provide something spreading and recover and some liriope for something, again, kind of evergreen that, that can really sort of take anything. There's a couple of geraniums, some wallbrake pink, you know, total thug. But when it gets going, we've just got this big froth of pink and you can knock it back whenever you want to. Some sanguisorba, just uh, the sort of straight normal burnet species, which has done a lot better given the dryness than I thought it would. It's given it that slightly meadowy feel alongside uh, Deschampsia, so Deschampsia flexuosa. So there's there's almost, a, with the geraniums and the grass and the, um, the burnet, you know, sort of trying to echo a bit of a, a meadow feel. That's been in there about a year now, so it's settling in a bit, but still very unsure what the conditions in that bed are going to be longer term and, and how it will thrive. Our rose garden's got over 300 roses, but it's underplanted with wild garlic. I think it's called Tobacchia. We have a native wild garlic in our woodlands, but it's a different species, I think. It's called Tobacchia, purple flowers. It's got a very strong smell. Does yours also? Very, very strong smell. Yeah, use it for, for pestos, but it's white flowered. Oh, no, okay, so ours is a beautiful purple and it supposedly keeps the snakes away. Um, I'm not convinced about that, but a lot of people ring their gardens actually in that. In fact, there's a very famous garden called Babylon's Tourin. It's a vegetable garden in the Western Cape and they are adamant they've never seen a snake and their entire garden is run with this wild garlic that we've got. How interesting. Yeah, and the roses seem to love it. Yeah. They, they see, it seems to keep the pests away. It's sort of a nice compliment for the roses. They finished that bit a little early, but the rest of the project a little late. And we managed to sneak in and plant the bulbs in October, even though building completion wasn't till till January. I mean, sneak in with permission. It wasn't like a guerrilla nighttime raid to uh, <laughs> do the... Um, do bulb planting but um that meant that actually from february when the, the building builders cleared off we already had the bulbs coming up you know the crocuses were there and then our sisters were coming along and it, it sort of it made such a difference i think to people to have that ready to go we put about nine thousand bulbs so a sort of succession of early through to late spring so we, we start with the galanthus then through some crocus chrysanthus then couple of types of Scylla and a Muscari, um, Narcissus bulbacodium and Chilipa sylvestris. Um, so it, it sort of goes through in these kind of mass waves of bulbs and which are Trinity, Trinity's crest is, is blue and gold. So I was, was kind of slightly sucking up to college. 
You must have been the only professional gardening team in the country to actually get their bulbs in in October. Uh. <laughs> I think, I mean, my, my team are very forgiving, but I think behind my back, they do think I'm just, yeah, my, I'm there with my calendar going, no, it's bulb planting time. We're going to do it. Yeah, we're doing it today. They've arrived on, on time with the order and now they're going in the ground. <laughs> the monkeys are distracted, but they more by the river area because they need bigger trees. They wouldn't be happy in these small trees. So thank goodness, though. I'd love them in one way, but also they're terrible wasters. You know, they'll take a piece of fruit, take one bite and chuck it down. And then also, of course, you can't leave any of your windows open with a monkey because they'll be in your house in five minutes. So, um, yeah, they, they keep away from us. Well, now I think we've seen two like, coming through, but that's all we've seen up here. They're, they're a real issue, but, you know, they were also here first. So we kind of have to learn to work around them. Quite right. And that's that seems to be the ethos of the garden, which is nice. Well, that's, that's what I think. And if people can, if they can come in and behave, they're allowed in. And if they can't behave, then they have to stay on the other side of the fence. That's kind of our philosophy. It's a wonderful philosophy. Perfect. Okay, I'm not very good at the elevator pitch. I'm much better at long format. You need to work on that for your book. I do. I do. You're right. I should send you Bob's book of essays, which is, especially as winter is coming, it's a great um, night table book. And they're just like short little essays on the garden. These are the ones written for the local paper? Yeah. Perfect. I'd love that. I'll send, I'll send you a copy. Brilliant. That would be, that'd be absolutely wonderful. Alejandro, I'm going to say goodbye now, and I'll speak to you hopefully very soon. Okay, cool. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, thank you so much, Kate. And I'll drop in on you again, if that's all right, in a, in a couple of months. Yeah, yeah. Probably when you're doing your bulbs. <laughs> Probably. I'll have finished them all by then. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> the schedule, Ben. The schedule. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much. That was gorgeous. And if you need anything else, just... You let me know. I'd love to talk to you again after the rains have come in a couple of months and hear about those Perfect. summer plants. Perfect. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Ben. No, thank have you. Have a good day. Thank you very okay. much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode one of Dear Gardener. I think we're at the start of something quite exciting. What I hope is that we'll be able to drop in again on Vicky, Kate and Alejandro in a couple of months' time to see what they've been up to and whether the project they talked about worked as anticipated. I've put together some show notes for this episode, so that'll be in the description below where you found this podcast. I've put a link to the work of Fernando Curuncho, the landscape architect mentioned by Alejandro to the Trinity College website and to Kate's own website, The Cultivated Gardener. There's also a link to the Madhu Conservancy if you want to see more of Alejandro's work. And finally, a link to my Ko-Fi page. That's the place where you can buy me a digital coffee to say thank you for my time and hosting costs in putting together this, if you so wish. Next week, we will be meeting three different gardeners, one of them in an architect's garden in Pennsylvania, another in Cameroon, in the capital Uinde, and the third in the south of the United Kingdom. 
All today's conversations were recorded in late September, but it's now mid-October here in Copenhagen, and we're just at the end of a glorious Virginia creeper season. It's been flaming through the ivy-hung fences. I've had a very good week in the garden, where I've been putting in bulbs, some aconites, some snowdrops, and some sailboat daffodils in the front garden, and a top-up of camassia in the back garden. I've also been doing some speaking. I gave a talk for the Gardens Trust on J.J. Sexby and the politics of the Victorian public park, which utilised my favourite anecdote, that of Mr Cochrane, the supervisor of Finsbury Park and his kingdom of darkness in North London. I also flew back over to the UK for the Seven Oaks Literary Festival and a little joint talk with, with Leif Bursweden, the, the fantastic young botanist. His book is a year spent looking at wildflowers around the UK. And my book is a year spent drawing universal stories out of a hyperlocal street in southeast London. So they worked quite well together as, as contrasting pieces. Today's gardening job, I think, will be taking all of the green tomatoes off and deciding whether they will ripen in a bowl inside or whether they are destined for the chutney jar. I'm sure there are similar projects going on across the Northern Hemisphere at the moment. If you would like to talk about any such project, then please do send me an email. At the moment, I'm using the old email address for the Garden Log. That's the Garden Log Podcast at gmail.com. Come and feature as one of the dear gardeners. I'd particularly like to talk to some people in Australia and New Zealand, if I could. If you'd like to get in touch without necessarily featuring on the program, you can follow me on Twitter at Ben's Garden and on Instagram at Ben underscore dark underscore. Please do tell people about Dear Gardener. And leave a rating and a glowing review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Particularly in these early days, it makes a difference to, to getting noticed, getting out in front of people, which is what is going to make all of this worthwhile. Thank you very much for listening, and I will see you back here next week. I hope it to the sunlight, I hope it to the sunlight. Times are getting tough and the folks are cutting down. They even decide to do their own gardening. Their own gardening. Take my advice and knock off for a while. The happiness boys are on a rampage. Fred has helped me to start a small Pelagonia nursery. Yes.